This is the most perfect bake-at-home brownie. See if you agree. This is the focus group. They're all business, except when they're not. It's the focus group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Welcome to the focus group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. John T. Nash. We are the focus group here every Wednesday through any social media outlet or anywhere you seem to find your uh, your podcasts or your shows like this. This is a video cast, John. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the video cast of the audio podcast. Of the audio <laughs> podcast in our 16th year, and we release it again on Saturday where we get the biggest hit because people are still used to listening to us on mm-hmm. Saturdays. And uh, I did a long opening today, John, I, I guess a little more longer. You had found a great article about making store-bought brownies at home and what is the best mix and it's a great story i was surprised I by the results personally yes so we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll share that later on in the show and uh before we get going mr nash the super bowl is this weekend and did you see the story about how much super bowl tickets are going to cost no i was paying more attention to how much spot time was actually sold what's a ticket worth do you have a, do you have a guess because i and and because uh, i you know, I, when... I was way off do I want to say 2200 So I think you're better than I was. So this is a Super Bowl 58, and the average ticket is about $8,000. Eight? Yeah. Eight? The cheapest, the cheapest that they found at TickPick was $8,000. It's the most expensive Super Bowl on record, according to SeatGeek and TickPick. Average prices are ranging from 10527 to 12082 on secondary markets. For reference, last year's Super Bowl, the average ticket was about 5,700 to 6,000. They said they think part of it has to do with the location. Last year, the Super Bowl was in Arizona. This year, it's in Las Vegas. But they did a whole list of what they found they, they felt were the cheapest seats with fees. So they were 8,900, 8,000, 9,300, 8,200, 8,400, it's um, shocking to me because I can't imagine. Um, they, then they go back about five years, back to Super Bowl 53, which was in Atlanta. The ticket was 53.29. Who the hell can afford to go to the Super Bowl? Wait, wait, wait. You, they went, you, that last number, the 53.29, was from five years ago? Yeah, it was it? Super Bowl 53. So it would have been one, two, three, four, five years ago. Um, I guess the next question is um, how are the tickets selling? No, like hotcakes. Like you know, it's got to be all. It's got to be all corporate. Um, you know, corporate tickets. When I I went to the Super Bowl once, and I thought it was outrageous. It was three hundred and twenty-five dollars was the ticket. Now this was in the early nineties. It was in Minnesota. It's showing and, your age. <laughs> and um, I took Marianne. I had just moved to Minnesota. She had flown up, and she and I went to the Super Bowl. And somebody had offered us four hundred dollars, I think, for the tickets out front. And uh, you know, three minutes after we were into the spectacle, we said we should have sold the tickets. But um, <laughs> but we wanted to go see what a Super Bowl was like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Gloria Estefan sang, and uh, and it was. Um, I, I can't imagine that ninety percent of the U.S. population could afford. Although this is, seems to be happening everywhere with. Even if you wanted to take kids to go see a, an NBA game or, or something Disney in a city, on ice. <laughs> Disney, right? It, it's you know, it's, it's it could be a thousand dollars easy for 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 four people to go to something like that, or to go to a basketball game, or I don't, I, don't, I think baseball is still probably the better bargain of the group. 
I agree. But it's outrageous mm-hmm. to me how much how much the tickets were. I thought who could ever if you were if you were a real fan of in this case the the Chiefs or the the 49ers and you were going to go with a couple of people are you going to spend you know $17,000 on tickets and then what's your hotel going to be in your airfare and it would be 25, you know, $20,000 weekend. I remember years and years ago when my nieces were really young, we took them to see The Lion King on Broadway. Yeah. I was appalled then that each ticket was 110. And this goes back 20 some 20 some years, right? And and the whole thing about the Super Bowl being in Vegas, like when they had F1 out there, the, right. the car race, the tickets originally were starting at 22 or 2500 and they were not selling and they dropped them down to 800. I don't even think they sold all the tickets for that. Hmm. I know Super Bowl's different, but um you know, well, the just, Book of Mormon, how much are those tickets? Weren't they at 700 oh, or something? 150, 200 bucks. Oh, I thought easy. they were 700, people Some, were Yes, you can, if you, if you buy for advanced seating, orchestra, et the cetera, orchestra it center. could be that expensive, yeah. See, I think that's, I don't know. I just think that's outrageous for anything. What's, what's it cost to get into a museum in New York if you went to the Met? Is it $30 well, an adult? As a, New York, as a New York resident, we're allowed to pay what we want. I've seen people pay a dime. Um, what do you mean as a New York resident? Uh, it's a, the museum has some amazing endowments and funding, and uh, they get money from the cultural affairs thing. So you can, you can actually show your license or your proof of residency and pay a dollar or pay 10 cents or whatever. But normally the suggested entry is 18 to $20 maybe. Is that for anybody? So if I just yeah. went? If you just, and what yeah. about the fact that I pay taxes in New York? Well, that's why we get to pay what we want for the museum. <laughs> But I can't. The, uh, I can't say. Could I say I pay taxes here? I don't have a, ta- a New York license, but I'm paying you tax. Will they let me in? I don't know if they would. I don't know if that would fly. No. <laughs> <laughs> I went with a friend years ago, and we went. He said, "Here, watch this." We went up to the counter, and he said, "I want to pay a dollar a piece." And they're like, "Are you residents?" Yeah. And they're okay. Welcome. Enjoy the museum. I never forgot that because I'm always Bob, and I are always like pay what we want to, you know. And then Bob got wise to it, and now he'll he'll say, "Let's just pay what we want to pay." Really? Yeah. Are all the museums like that or just mm, I think uh the Metropolitan Museum of Art is like that. I don't think the Guggenheim is. I'm pretty sure MoMA is not like that. There are a couple, right. but that's one of them. And maybe the Natural History Museum. I have to think about that. What about the Bronx Zoo? I wonder what that costs. That's public, I have right? never been and I'm dying to go and You've never been to I've the Bronx here. Zoo? No. Oh my Maybe gosh! Maybe as a kid, I, I just don't remember. That was uh, a big trip when I grew up in Stamford. There was take the bus mm-hmm. into the Bronx Zoo, and uh, yeah, that was a, that was always a fun a fun day. We'd go down to the Bronx Zoo. I can't believe you haven't done that. <laughs> That's shocking. That's shocking to me. There's like Adam took me on a bike ride in the Bronx uh, the day after Christmas or two days after Christmas, and we rode around this. And, and I was riding around neighborhoods, a neighborhood that I literally live like ten minutes from, right. And there were these enormous houses with stone wall. It looked like we were in, in um, you know, Maplewood, New Jersey or something. And I'm like, we're in the Bronx? And you see the Hudson? And, and I said, Adam, I've lived here for 38 years. I've never <laughs> been on this road in my life. He's laughing his ass off. He goes, no, that's a, he goes, that's everybody. Back to the Super Bowl for a second. Um, this whole Taylor Swift thing and, and Kelsey and is there a psyops going on? Are they going to throw the game? Like... That's well, ridiculous. Maga got really spun up about that one, huh? Yeah, well, they, they, I think some pundit had the best, the best uh, reply to that. They said, first, first you're telling us that uh, 
President Biden is feeble and a fool and can't put her sentence together, yet he planned this Clever big, enough. big diabolical, you know, thing around the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to twist yourself into a Dutch pretzel to get that kind of result, right? Yeah, and why? Yeah, and then when when you know. Mr. Trump got the $83 million uh, lawsuit, or, or the... Um, the judgment. The judgment. I flipped over to Fox to see what they were talking about. Hunter, Hillary. There's <laughs> nothing, not, it didn't even mention it. Weren't even mentioning the thing, and I thought, man, oh, man, ta- and ta- Taylor you'll, Swift. You'll appreciate our household. I don't know if you're the same, but lately, like, I just can't watch the news, and... um and I read the news. I read the newspaper. So I know what's going on. I don't need to watch the opinion pieces, the whole thing. So every morning we used to watch Joe Scarborough or or CBS This Morning or CNN, right. whatever. Now Bob comes into the living room and BBC America runs Star Trek The Next Generation, usually weekdays, starting early. So he'll come in and he'll, he'll sit down and, and there's a Star Trek episode <laughs> playing. Not a peep out of him. Normally, he would say, do you want to go to the news? And I said, do you want me to go? The, the other day, I said, do you want me to switch back to it? No, no. The, the 23rd century is fine. <laughs> so you're just sitting there watching old sci-fi. Free runs that I've seen before, yeah. It's like me watching Lucy on Pluto. <laughs> Isn't it a much better experience? Put you in a better mood, right? Yeah. I was surprised I was watching a Lucy, and it was the first time I ever remember. Because they never, you never really knew. No. They, they, didn't, they didn't delve into any of that stuff. But they You didn't did, know the weather. You right. didn't know who was the president. You didn't know, yeah. yeah. But they did talk about President Eisenhower. They made ah, some comment okay. about President Eisenhower, and which I thought was interesting because they never, never did that. You never, they never delved into that. Uh, who was in the White House? Yeah, Seinfeld was like that too, really. Yeah. Other than New York with Mayor Dinkins when they did the yogurt thing, where they That's all right. gained weight <laughs> with the non-fat yogurt, yogurt. Yeah. So, Mr. Nash, what uh, what caught your eye this week? What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. All right. We are going to the land of the pharaohs for what caught my eye this Uh week. And it's surprising to me because as a kid, I always wondered what they would look like if they did this. I'm surprised they're doing it at all. Uh, But the headline is, um, Egypt is planning to reclad uh, or renovate one of its ancient pyramids using granite. And it has a lot of heritage experts horrified. So... You know, when you see the pyramids today, they, they have a stepped appearance because apparently they used to be either clad in granite or limestone with gold, like a gold cap or something, especially the Great Pyramid at Giza. Um, What's inside of those, John? There's, there, it's all solid rock except for like a burial chamber and a couple of tunnels, you know. And if you talk to the ancient alien crowd, it's some kind of spaceship landing thing or a, a transmitter for power. <laughs> I just think it's a tomb. Yeah. But... Um, this is one of the smaller pyramids on the Giza Plateau, and it's already begun. This uh, the antiquity, the Supreme Council of Antiquities posted a video on Facebook, and they made an announcement that they are going to be recladding this five thousand year old uh, pyramid, and they're using um, granite and mortar. And it was des- and the pyramid was designed around the time of Pharaoh Menkaure, M E N K A U R E Menkaure. The reason the heritage experts are upset about this is. This has been exposed to the elements for a long time. Years and years ago, the granite was stripped off. Uh, and in fact, there's rumor that sometimes when they took the, the limestone or the granite off these pyramids, they used them for other buildings like churches or something like that. So they're wondering why they want to reclad it anyway. But this, the, um, 
the project manager is saying that this is going to be a gift to the world, that you'll be able to see what a pyramid actually looked like back in the day. I mean, we're talking thousands of years ago before this granite came off. So the picture, if you're watching on YouTube, what I'm showing is a, um, a bunch of workers at the base of this smaller pyramid. Mind you, this is one of the smaller ones. The, the Giza Plateau is a couple. This is the smallest one and one of the oldest. Um, and they're starting the work of cutting and placing these granite stones over this. They'll probably put a capstone on it. Uh, part of me is like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, if they, when they, it's supposed to be done in three years. If you go to Egypt, you'll be able to see what one, one small pyramid might've looked like at the time. But then the other part of me thinks, okay, so you're going to put stone over stone. Aren't you inviting like all sorts of trouble if there's moisture seepage or like it's the desert maybe i'm just being crazy right <laughs> what's well, like painting a great piece of antique furniture and then realize i shouldn't have painted it painted it or it's <laughs> like you watch the antiques roadshow and someone yeah. says oh this would have been worth fifty thousand. Yeah. You, you repainted it and it's now worth ten dollars you, you know, stripped like, it and that... sanded it down it's worth nothing yeah <laughs> it's that kind of thing so um the pyramid's only 213 uh, feet tall and um as i said it's going to take about three years and there's a Japanese company that's backing the effort, and they claim that as they clad the pyramid in stone, they are going to do extensive archaeological work and documentation, and so there's going to be a whole record of what they've done and what they found. I think it's, part of me is like, well, why bother? And the other part is, well, why not, right? If it's a, it's a, it's a small pyramid, we know what the other ones look like. Maybe I'm just being, you know. No, I'm with know. you. I don't know. It, it, to me, it looks almost fake. It looks like that fake, you know, fake stone you'd put over something. Oh, you mean in the picture? In it the looks picture, like that. Yeah. It, yes, it looks like they put down a sheet of plastic that was printed to look like stone, right? Yeah. Oh. I I thought that there was all kinds of rules about not touching that stuff. And, mm -hmm. and well, there are, but this is the Egyptian government changing the yeah. rules so they could do this, and it's a gift to the world. You know what? If they finish it and everybody loves it, yeah, you know. Okay. And tourism is one of their biggest industries, right? So if you want to draw people, I, I'm not, you know. Although I don't 50, know if a lot of people it. are flocking there yet, again, with all that's mm -hmm. going on right next door, right? Yeah, true, true. So, sadly. My, um, my story is certainly vastly different, as it always happens. At, uh, the headline was, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett accused of turning their backs on women by the Saudi Arabian ambassador. So, um, your friend and mine, John, Martina Navratilova, a tennis great, and Chrissy Everett have teamed up and they had written an opinion piece uh, last week because Saudi Arabia has decided that they are going to um, host the WTA finals in Saudi Arabia. So the Women's Tennis Association is considering moving the season-ending tournament to Riyadh. And uh, Prince, Princess Rema bin Bandar al-Saud is disappointed that Martina and Chris Everett are against us. Combined, Martina and, and Chrissy won 18 Grand Slam single titles. Um, Martina 67, Chrissy 69, and their opinion piece in the, in the Washington Post said, we did not help to build women's tennis to be exploited by Saudi Arabia. And Martina and Chrissy both pointed out about how women are not considered equal citizens in the country, and they fought for so many years to get um, women's tennis to be compatible or to be on the same level as men's tennis and sports, and that they see this as a regression for women's tennis, and it's just a money grab. And um, she actually had a had a name for it called sports washing, which people are talking about. Saudi Arabia soccer, just went through this you, with soccer, kind of, yeah, golf. Okay. They they did it with golf. Oh yeah, as yeah, well. the live thing, though. Yeah, right. And so um, 
Martina is um, pressuring the uh, the Women's Tennis Association, along with Chrissy Everett, not to go to Saudi Arabia. Martina then also added, aside from the part that um, the country still um, makes women have male guardianship if you're going out, they just allowed women to drive finally. It's no longer a criminal offense. Women can finally drive. But she also made, um, made note that they criminalize LGBTQ people uh, and to the point of possible death sentences. And she said they have a long-term record on, on human rights abuses and not a place to hold an international competition. So I, I give Martina credit. She, she walks the walk. She will say it, and she's not afraid to say it. And she says what she, she believes. And in this case, I don't, I don't disagree with her in many, many regards. I think we've given Saudi Arabia over the years a free pass due to the fact that the oil was involved, right? Well, also their their power, their geopolitical power in yep. the area. Um, wasn't the World Cup held there recently? And and it was all this, all the teams who normally support LGBTQ. They have like it will be like our NFL having an yep. LGBTQ night or something. All the World Cup players were told they should, you know, can anything that has to do with LGBTQ, no rainbow, this whatever. And a lot of teams and a lot of individuals actually actually objected to that. It's like okay fine you want to have it in saudi arabia but yeah. right. so everybody played by the rules it, it i i i'm i'm with you and i'm actually with martina frankly yeah on this one it's like yeah <laughs> if if that's what the stated intent of the country and it's really it's a theocracy if that's the if that's what you're that's great but that doesn't mean i have to have my sporting event there right or i don't have to have women's tennis events there yeah, they said Saudi Arabia is doing this to help um, help their image. They said mm-hmm. uh, they made heavy investments in golf, Formula One, and football, and boxing. And um, apparently, I guess, the, the, also that um, Martina and uh, Chrissy were a little upset because Billie Jean King seems to be okay with it, with going there. Well, but see, she can hold that opinion. She could think yeah. that, that it's good for everybody. It lifts, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. But we're still talking about Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah, well, that's where Billie Jean was coming from. She said she thought it was important to have a seat at the table and at least show, if you can, um, and help break stereotypes. So Billie Jean's looking at it a different way. Martina's like, Nat, we're not going to support you. Billie Jean is, well, maybe we can start conversations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good, it's a good one. It's, it's, mm, yeah. Well, it, I think you're the same way, though. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what conversation it's starting, but okay, it's a it's a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so those were caught my eye this week. As many of you know, uh, Deep Discounts, a partner of ours here on the Focus Group for quite some time. You can find them by going to focusgroupradio.com. You can click on the Deep Discount logo, start shopping away. We appreciate your your support of them because uh, of their support of us. And right now, there's the 50th anniversary sale going on. So, John did the math. 1974. Yeah, John, already 50 years. Movies from 1974. (laughs) Movies from 1974. So, there's some great movies you can uh, you can find to build your library during the 50th anniversary sale. Mr. Nash, what did you find this week? By the way, there are a lot of amazing movies that were released in 1974. One of the ones at the top of my list is Chinatown, starring Jack Nicholson. Amazing Oscar-winning movie. Love the story. Worth worth it for anybody's collection but we were talking on a, a many previous episodes we talk about how you can't see everything you want when you want because the streaming right. services don't have them i picked the original movie version of murder on the orient express it stars albert finney lauren bacall um 
Ingrid Bergman, Jacqueline Bissett, Sean Connery, John Gielgud. I mean, it's like Anthony Perkins. It's it was directed by Sidney Lumet. It's one of those movies that I remember seeing when I was younger, and I really enjoyed it. And I, the remake that came out recently was just not for me. No, you could pick it up for fifteen forty nine on Blu ray, and sure enough, I went on to see if I could watch it, and I thought, oh, it's on Netflix. And just as we were getting ready to watch it, um, we realized that it left the streamer. It left Netflix on January 31st. So it had been there for a little while and it was gone. So I'm like, (laughs) Bob goes, oh, I really wanted to see it because he has good memories of the Orient Express, Murder on the Orient Express as well. Jeez. Because Albert Finney plays Hercule Poirot, the the titular French detective, Belgian detective. Um, so that's my pick, and it's because of this whole you can't see everything all the time, right? Yeah, I, I, um, there were a couple there. I liked there was a John Waters movie, Female Trouble, which I uh-huh. think might have been on on uh, back order, and then I was surprised, Blazing Saddles. There were quite a few. Nineteen seventy four. There were there Herbie the Love Bug, you know, rides mm-hmm. again. I remember that as a kid, but I stumbled on. I, I did my deep dive into the into the catalog and came across something called Home Bodies, which was a horror comedy. It said. Have you ever heard of it? No. And I'm wondering why you, like, I, I vaguely know this. Like, I vaguely remember the title, Homebodies, but I, I just, uh, so, so it's, anyway. It's only 96 minutes long. It came out in 74. It's about $12. And I read the description, and so then immediately we went and watched the trailer, and just my mouth was open about it, because it was just so badly campy. Um <laughs> So I'll just read a, a short description. With new construction underway throughout their Cincinnati neighborhood, the fixed-income seniors who lived in a decaying apartment building were sure they were going to be evicted. So the retirees, of course, get evicted, but they're going to build a new building there. So they take matters into their own hands, and they start killing the, the construction <laughs> workers and the other people within the demolition crew. And uh, they said it's a long-sought horror farce. That's and and they said it's genuinely unique and creepy. The film has a seedy, dark, feudal feel to it, with an underlying underlying its sick, twisted plot. The deaths are executed with very little remorse or feeling. They said the elderly who, who at first seem you seem to have pity on, turn into cold killing machines. <laughs> very so these little, little ladies with or... the little knit knit caps and the old men and whatever. And so they they go through these um. They start, you know, the the construction woman comes and she's gonna, you know, she's the four four person on the on the job, and they they kill her, they they kill the construction workers, they don't want their building taken down. So I just thought this would be one of these things where, um, I thought it'd be interesting to see. I don't know, I've never seen it, but I thought it was something there that I, you're I'd, not going to find I'd, elsewhere. Home bodies on DVD. I'd put this as a TBF. A Tim Bennett find. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They come up and they're good. Our friend Lauren may be able to tell us she's watched everything. I think she's watched she everything. She probably knows Disco. this movie and she'd yeah. probably be like, oh God. So she'll she let us know it. or say, oh, stay away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the new and release we, this week? We do have a new release this week. It's uh, Thanksgiving on Blu ray. It came out on January 30th, so it's available right now. After a Black Friday riot ends in tragedy, a mysterious Thanksgiving inspired killer terrorizes Plymouth, Mass the birthplace of the holiday. Picking <laughs> off residents one by one, what begins as a random revenge killings are soon revealed to be part of a larger sinister holiday plan. Will the town uncover the killer and survive the holidays or become guests at his twisted holiday Ooh. dinner table? So this is 
Thanksgiving on Blu-ray. It seems to be a horror film, right? Yeah. All right, so folks, it's a deep discount. You can get there by visiting focusgroupradio.com and clicking on the deep discount logo. We invite you to do that and start your shopping extravaganza. Plenty of things to get there. And if you're interested in the 50th anniversary sale, that's referring to movies that came out in 1974. We've gone through a whole bunch. I picked a favorite of mine from childhood, and I love the cast, and I can't wait to see it again. Murder on the Orient Express Blu-ray. It's a 1549. TBF, a Tim Bennett, Tim Bennett find, Homebodies, which I heard of, maybe, but it's about a bunch of old folks who kill everybody because, well. You'll have to explain. watch the trailer and see. It, it, it left me uneasy. <laughs> just the trailer. I was like, ooh. To leave you is, uneasy is something, right? I, I thought and this is just not, not, this is just creepy. But it's okay. not what you thought. And the wow. new release is Thanksgiving. Looks like it's a horror film that takes place in Plymouth, Mass. Uh, so we want to thank Deep Discount for being a partner of ours here on The Focus Group. Uh, as again, focusgroupradio.com, click on their logo and start the shopping away. We are going to take a really quick break and when we return, we have a business birthday and a shop talk. So we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Now, back to the focus group with Tim and John. Available pretty much everywhere. Hey, welcome back to the focus group. Tim Bennett here with John Nash. We are the focus group in our 16th year. You're coming to your screens or your tablets or your phones. How, 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 much, how do a lot of people watch us? Is it phone now? I don't know. I don't, you know, that's a great question. I, I know folks who'd call it up on their TV on YouTube. So I don't know check. how we look in 4K, but. <laughs> We YouTube, YouTube, that, so. yeah, YouTube sometimes will give us the uh, the stats of where people are coming from. I saw more and more mobile, which uh, yes. which is interesting. So we'll have to check that out. So without further ado, we have one of our signature uh, bits here on the focus group: our business birthday. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the focus group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. So John, here we are in February already. February seventh. Don't even don't even say. Yeah. I know. Born February seventh in eighteen oh four. This is a real person, John Deere. D e e r e. John Deere, mm-hmm. American blacksmith and manufacturer. He founded the he founded Deere and Company, which is one of the largest and leading agricultural and construction equipment manufacturers in the world. He was born in Rutland, Vermont. And uh, he, he got his education for a little while. He had a brief education at Middlebury College, a good college up there. But uh, Vermont? Co- yeah, in Middlebury, Vermont. Right, yeah. He, um, he did not, uh, he wanted, college wasn't necessarily for him, so he decided to start, a, he went and joined an apprenticeship at a blacksmith shop and uh, went into the trade by himself as a blacksmith in 1826 and ended up got, getting married, had nine children. Nine. Nine children, and uh, decided that he, he in 1836, he left Vermont, but he said he fell on hard times, and he followed a business associate out to Illinois. And uh, he settled in, the, in, uh, in Illinois, and at the time, uh, he had no difficulty finding work because there were a lack of blacksmiths in that area. So he, he started working as a blacksmith and found that cast iron plows out there were not working very well in the tough prairie soil. And uh, he remembered back in his times in Vermont about um, the way he was constructing some of these steel plows about polish and running them through sand and so forth, how they would sharpen 
And so he just, his conclusion was he was going to make this very highly polished steel plow and uh, have, a, have a self-scouring shape or self-scouring steel plow to better handle the soil out in the Midwest and out in the West. And lo and behold, um, it was able to get through the sticky, sticky soil, or as he said, which had lots of clay in it. And um, so he, st- he was essentially the, the Henry Ford of plows. He came up with, um, with this plow that uh, really helped change farming. It was the plow that broke the plains, they said. Kind of like, what was the barbed wire? The barbed wire. The tame rope. the West. Devil's rope. Yeah. Tame the West. This was the plow that broke the plains. So it was um, able to um, deal with the soil, the more clay-like or, or tougher soil than just a plain old cast iron, which is right, iron is softer, yeah. Right. So he developed and manufactured the first commercially successful cast steel plow. So it had polished steel, and uh, it was able to get through the tough Midwest soil. It worked better than any of the other plows. So he started... Um, Selling him, he was, you know, initially in the 1840s, he, he would do about 75 to 100 a year. But um, as, as he got popular and so forth, he moved the business to Moline, Illinois. And because um, it was a transportation hub and, and with the rail, uh, rail service. By 1855, he was making about 10,000 plows and selling them. And wow. um, so he did quite good. He insisted on making only high-quality equipment, he said. He was quoted as saying, I will never put my name on a product that does not have it, uh, or does not have in it the best that it is uh, to me to find. So in other words, he, he never, never um, would try to cheapen any product. It's one of the great American, American companies. He uh, retired um, and handed the business over to his son, Charles, and then he got himself involved in politics. He was a mayor for two years in Moline. And uh, was involved in uh, the National Bank uh, in Moline there and did some other work. But um, credited, of course, with starting one of America's great companies. It's 188 years old. In 2022, they had $52.3 billion in revenue. The um, 60,000 employees worldwide, half of them are in the United States and Canada. It's the largest agricultural machinery company in the world. The logo of the Leaping Deer, which is famous in the yellow and white paint, uh, had been there since uh, for 155 years. And they said one thing about him, he never repossessed any equipment from the farmers during the Great Depression. So they would you know, buy products on time. Leasing during, or renting. Right, yeah. during the Great Depression, a lot of companies, they mentioned International Harvest or whatever, were taking back farmers' equipment. He never, ever would do that. He, um, you know, he stayed with the farmers, and I think that's why they had so much, uh, so much support. There's a, there's a funny sidebar here that they said the John Deere Farm Equipment Company recently has been criticized for being impossible to service or repair by owners or third parties because you have to go to a John Deere dealer which can access the computer code, similar to a car dealership, right? Yeah. You buy a Volkswagen, yeah. you'd be yeah. better to go to VW and they could hook it up. And they said, however, this has proved to be uh, useful that uh, they're so difficult. So... They said that remote locking by the manufacturer is also possible. So if your tractor was stolen or something, John Deere could lock your tractor. So the Russians invaded Ukraine, as we all know. I remember this, yeah. And there are lots of John Deere tractors. So it's reported that when the Russians invaded Ukraine, the Russian troops stole a lot of these Ukrainian John Deere farm equipment. And the dealers and the owners were able to remotely lock the equipment, rendering all the tractors useless. So the Russians dragged all these things back to Russia, and they can't use them because they're all been locked by John Deere and or the farmers 
in Ukraine. So they just, they're, they're inoperable, which I thought was hilarious. So the fact that people were critical of it, it, it's now turned out to be, well, guess what? It wasn't a bad feature, right? It wasn't a bad feature. It proved to be useful. So happy birthday, John Deere. Excellent business birthday. And we just profiled John Deere. We talked about them one or two weeks ago that they were going to be partnering with a Ego, I think, was an electric battery uh, electric yes. company to provide some of their equipment with battery and electrification. Uh, you know, hey, upstate, you know, the if there, there's a couple hats of choice that people wear, like ball caps, one of them is always a John Deere. John like Deere. when we went to County Fair this year for the very first time, John Deere was everywhere. So was Van. What was the um, the a trucker? It's a trucker cap. That's uh that everybody loves i'll remember in a second did but you anyway. did you get food at the at the county fair did i ask we you did we did, did you I get ice what'd you get fr- did you get any fried dough or anything you no know, bob saw it in the in action and he's <laughs> you like you gotta hey, get it when it's right hot if it gets cold it's no good we saw people waiting online for the it was fried ding dongs or twinkies or something and he's like eh. we did have a we did have a night we had we had good lunch I had a gyro and then we had a like ice cream from a dairy which was amazing and then we watched a little piglets race do you want any rides scrambler uh, no. the, the, the rides that's the other thing the, we're watching these rides we're like one bolt just one bolt <laughs> and you know set it up <laughs> they partied the night before hey, you know that here. stuff i think about at quasipog or whatever when we would go that stuff there was no padding it was just hard metal it was hot if you sat on it with your little you know your little you thighs fried. you could because right. in the sun tim is but talking they'd, about they'd it slam you into the yeah. sides right you, there was no padding and the side was like a piece of metal you could literally yeah. like cut your hurt yourself no one sued anybody. Our parents tried to keep us away from Lake Quasipog by threatening, by telling us an urban legend of how a child was decapitated on the wild mouse because <laughs> the car jumped the track and went through a wire and took someone's head off. You know, I remember that. Listen, as a sidebar, do you remember you and I would go down there and take you? I, when I think about it now, because I don't think you had any training, we'd go down and take out the Zambruski sailboat, the sunfish. Yeah. Did you yeah, know what yeah. you were doing? No. I hear I'm thinking, I, I was thinking about that the other day. I said, you know, John used to, we'd go down there and I had no idea what I was doing. He'd be like, oh yeah, Carol said we could take it at any time. I don't know whether she did or not. She did. She let us do and it. And we'd yeah. go there. I don't know how you knew what you were doing. We used to go sailing around out there. No idea what we were doing. Yeah, but Lake, Tim, Lake Quasipog wasn't big enough that if we had a problem, you could swim to shore. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm I was sure. looking at it on the, on the map. I thought, where the hell, John? Because we would get there, it would be afternoon yeah you would drag Mid-day, it out like like three in the afternoon and we go out on this lake and yeah you're, yeah well, hey we thinking, survived tim we're here i'm thinking you knew how to sail <laughs> no I, and i said to myself I said, i'm not so sure john knew how to sail <laughs> not that i even but, asked you but you i know. put up a good show right yeah well you seem to know what you were doing you probably saw it once on a tv show and remember tv it. show <laughs> So, hey, our shop talk this week, John found, and this is probably one of my favorite shop talks in a while. We teased it at the opening of the show, but there's a woman who's a professional baker. Her name is Alana Alhatlani, and she decided, which I think was a great thing to do, and we should. I was trying to think if there's a product we should try to do this with, John, but she had bought five brands of box brownie mix to see which one is the best, and she made them all and tried to keep it all within the same, you know, followed the directions exactly. She did exactly. everything, yeah. She, she duplicated her process right right so it was always in the middle rack mm-hmm. and you know she she tried to make sure that the there were a bunch of constants in there so one didn't have a uh a um a leg well, up she on said the for other consistency she scaled all she used the same measuring cups she used the same eight by eight non-inch stick, yep. uh, non-stick 
pan greased with baking spray and lined with parchment paper for each mix. All brownies were baked on the center rack. And she used a cake tester. I've never heard of a cake tester. I guess it's like a some thermometer thing to check for doneness. And then she cooled each batch for exactly 20 minutes and then transferred it to a wire rack for another 20. <laughs> she was very scientific, Tim, don't you think? Right. And she used, uh, so she bought Duncan Hines, Betty Crocker, Pillsbury, something Kodiak cakes, which I didn't know of, and Ghirardelli. And uh, she said, as a professional baker, I think a good brownie has a strong chocolate flavor and a fudgy center mm-hmm. and soft edges and aren't tough or dry. So she goes through each of them that she, she did, and, um, and then we'll tell you at the end which one she picked as, as the best one, which um, John had mentioned earlier we, we were both somewhat surprised about. So what was, who was the first, first one she, she uh Yeah, so she most of the mixes were similar in their requirements, like yep. two-thirds a cup of oil or a quarter cup of water, usually one or two eggs. The box would say, you know, mix with 50 strokes or something. And she didn't always count, but she knew she was doing far more than 50. And I have to agree with her having made some of these yes. mixes. Her first one was Pillsbury. Uh, she baked for 50 minutes, which allowed them to rise significantly and dome in the center, which cracked a bit. When it completely cooled, they deflated a little and the crack wasn't as obvious. They also had the classic shiny crackled brownie top. And we all know what I'm talking about there. And she said, I didn't find any flaws with the Pillsbury brownies. These brownies were fluffy and thick with a fudgy center that wasn't overly dense and edges that weren't dry at all. They had a pleasant chocolate flavor and weren't overly sweet, so I couldn't fault them there. It's funny that she did this with Pillsbury because um, I usually go with like Duncan Hines or Betty Crocker. I haven't tried a Pillsbury brownie mix. But anyway, what was the next one? So the second one was Duncan Hines, which uh, was a chewy fudge brownie mix. And uh, again, she followed all the directions, um, and she made sure that uh, she was keeping true to, uh, to the directions in the box. She said that Duncan Hines brownies had a classic crackle top, and, um, but she said they needed a little more time to bake than the Pillsbury ones. She said that, um, that the brownies were moist and had a nice chocolate flavor. She did say, however, that they were chewy but had a slightly dry edge. And, um, but she's, when baked through, she said the brownies were shiny with a crackled top. They were chewier than the others and the edges were slightly dry, but they were solid fudgy brownies overall. So her conclusion, you know, seemed to be pretty good with the Duncan Hines. Except for those edges and the, the little edges were a little dry. Yeah. 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 Her next mix up was Betty Crocker dark chocolate brownie mix. Um, this episode, this, sorry, recipe called for two large eggs, a half a cup of oil. See, there's a little variation there. Evan was preheated to 325, a little lower than normally for 350. And she baked those for 53. She's the recipe says 53 minutes, the longest amount of time of any of the brownies that she tested. Uh, when baked, the brownies had a glossy chocolate exterior with the classic crackled top. And then she said, I found the taste of Betty Crocker's brownies would be good, but not great. The edges weren't dry, and the center was fudgy, but the flavor fell flat. They tasted rather sweet, and the chocolate flavor wasn't as pronounced as I would prefer or that she would prefer, which is interesting since they were labeled as dark chocolate. So Betty Crocker seems to have come in with a meh. <laughs> what was her next they were one? okay. Number four was Ghirardelli, which, um, of course, are famous for their chocolates. Aren't they from San Francisco? Yeah, uh-huh. you're right, right about that. So dark chocolate brownie mix, and um, so it only called for one egg, and uh, she baked it at 325. She said the brownies looked darker than the other mixes, 
And, uh, but they did also have a shiny crackle top when they were baked. She cooked those for about 40 minutes. She said they weren't too sweet and they had a denser, more fudge-like texture. She thought perhaps it was the addition of some chocolate chips that added the rich flavor to them. She said they had, of all the brownies, these had the most intense flavor of the bunch. Again, she, she um, thinks it's because there were some additional chocolate chips into the, into the batter. She said the edges, however, were quite dry and a little tough. Her conclusion was they were okay from a fudgy standpoint, but she felt they were a little dry and a little tough. Mm. Her last one was Kodiak cakes. Kodiak cakes, chocolate fudge brownies. Now, I've made some of Kodiak's other things. So you'll see these in the, uh, in the, the baking you know, section of a grocery right. store. Their, their big claim to fame is that they're healthier, in air quotes. They put in more protein into the mix. So you'll buy a Kodiak thing because you want your treat to have a little more protein, which is good for you. Uh, Called for two eggs. This time it's a half a cup of melted butter on top of oil and water that was put in. It was a 350 degree oven that she put them into. The batter was noticeably thicker than all the previous mixes, so much so that she had to use an offset spatula to evenly smooth it into the pan. See how when you dump into the pan, it just kind of sat there. She had to spread it around. It also had a dull, grainy texture, and like the Ghirardelli brownies, this mix had chocolate chips in it, though these were miniature. (laughs) She made a point of bringing that out. So she says the Kodiak Cakes brownies were both dry and bland. I baked these for 22 minutes and noticed that they came out with little bumps on top instead of the characters to crackle. The mini chocolate chips I spotted while mixing also seemed to have disappeared. I'm sure they melted. Taste-wise, these brownies were the cakiest of the bunch despite having fudge in their name. So she liked fudge is that denser, but right. they're probably a little lighter and cakier. They were a little dry, even though I baked them for the shortest amount of time possible. She likes the ingredients of Kodiak Cakes brownies, but, had, but didn't enjoy the texture of the brownie. A lot of people like those sort of things because they think they have healthier ingredients. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there was whole grain wheat flour. You did that a while back with something. I was like, John, they're not good. Weren't you making some sort of brownie that you were pretending you I really made liked? Brownie, it was it was skinny girl brownies, yeah, or something. And it was using sweet potato instead of sugar or something. And I, I brought them in, and you're like, eh. I'm not as good as a brownie. We only have a brownie. I have a brownie. You're, yeah, I made two batches. We never Bef- went back to that. Before so. before we announced who the winner was, I went to Amazon to find out how much the boxes cost. So Betty Crocker brownie mix two dollars fifty nine cents. Duncan Hines a dollar thirty eight. So that was mm. pretty cheap. Pillsbury, $2.69. Ghirardelli, $5.49. And the Kodiak brownies are $7. Yeah, the Kodiak's expensive. For yeah. the box. So she, um, she ranked them all. Do you want to say what, uh, you want to go five to one? Oh, the worst, like I did. She the worst know? was Kodiak cakes. Basically. She, yeah, yeah, she says she wasn't, she wasn't super impressed by Kodiak cakes, especially since they were the most expensive option. She said, although they did have eight grams of protein. So in the middle of the pack, you want to. The second was, I guess, of number four would be Duncan Hines. Yeah, Duncan Hines and Betty Crocker. She put in the middle of the pack. Betty, and you know, from the way she described it, Betty Crocker, the way she described the middle of the pack, perfectly right. She said uh, neither were bad, but Duncan Hines were a little chewy, and Betty Crocker's were a bit too sweet. But overall, she said they were brownies that made people happy. She ranked the winner as Pillsbury, and I, I now I'm dying to go on by a Pillsbury mix, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, so number two was her Giardelli, and um, she said they had good flavor, but they were dry on the edges. And number one, as John said, was Pillsbury. 
She said that it was the top pick because it yielded thick, fluffy brownies that were moist and had a nice flavor. They baked off evenly, weren't overly sweet, had a shiny crackle top, tender edges, and didn't dry out. So for two sixty nine, I thought we got to get a Pillsbury mix. But I'm like you; I'm not so sure I would have picked it up at the at the grocery store. I have never made a Pillsbury, and I am now going to try a Pillsbury uh, brownie mix. Why not? Right? Yeah, I was trying to think: is there something you and I should cook? We should try. Key lime you pies, mean, maybe, in or a, a, like made, a pre-made, like one um, of these things. If we said, John, we're all gonna, we're all gonna make chocolate chip cookies, or we're all gonna make sugar cookies, or we're all gonna make, I don't know, pick it up. You know, it's a. I'm gonna think about that. Yeah, well, because I'm I've, about I've, maybe I've the listeners can send us. Yeah, something. I've seen different mixes that I and a couple of different brands. Like brownies is the ones that have the most variety. Go into any store and try to buy buy gingerbread mix. There's only like one brand that does gingerbread. You like they gingerbread? do banana bread, gingerbread, pumpkin bread, but you like gingerbread? I love gingerbread. Yeah. Oh, I'm gonna have to get you some then because there's a good one that I know. Our <laughs> Bob, friend Kathy Bob, makes them. It's delicious. Bob over the holidays made gingerbread biscotti. Oh wow! And he puts like Struzel's chocolate on it. It's delicious. I saw two different cake brands, and I almost bought them, but I didn't. And then I saw New York Times. Um, I don't know if it's just the time of year. Orange cake. Hmm. And I, I was, I thought, hmm, I'd like well, to try that. Well, you love that flavor, huh? Well, orange or, you know, I, I like a lemon cake. For my birthday, oh. it was like a lemon cake. I know or you're chocolate, I like yeah. lemon. But, um, but I saw an orange cake, and I thought, that'd be interesting. Maybe I'll make an orange cake. I don't know. <laughs> if you have suggestions for us, we would, I would love to do a bake-off test. You and I could be very scientific about this. Yes. And and see, you know, it probably New York water is going to be better than my water down here. Oh, I don't know about that. But well, listen, you make good bagels. Fan, yeah, there you go. That's good that's bagels it. and pizza, right? They blame it on the water, don't they? <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for joining us here on the Focus Group. We're going to wrap it up for the day. Um, you, as you know, uh, from the top of our show and during the middle, we are sponsored by uh, Deep Discount. We'd like you to visit their site by going to ours, uh, Deep focusgroupradio.com click on the deep discount logo it's a 50th anniversary sale uh, movies that came out in 1974 tim and i reeled off a whole bunch but i picked the murder on the orient express the original uh that was directed by Sidney lumet tim picked home bodies this is a tbf a home tim bodies we haven't seen it we don't know but it's and creepy he says check the trailer out first then go to deep discount and order home bodies and the new release this week is a horror film that takes place in Plymouth, Mass., called, appropriately enough, Thanksgiving on Blu-ray. So we'd like to remind everybody to uh, don't text and drive, arrive alive, and we will see you in the new week. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.